It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Sky, what an incredible week this has been at the General Assembly. It has been filled with news, just packed with events, packed with committees, news in the political realm. It has been everything that you could want if you live in North Carolina politics. We get word yesterday, Tuesday, we're recording this on Wednesday night, by the way. We get news on Tuesday that Representative Julia Howard is no longer a finance chair. You know, I I really don't understand uh, what, what led up to this. But I do think it's an opportunity for us on the podcast to kind of explain committee chairs and how they get to be committee chairs. And then when you are a committee chair, there is a certain responsibility you have to your House caucus, whether you agree with them or not. Being in the leadership really has some unique responsibilities. Sure. You could be a committee chair for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons would be that you raise a lot of money and you contribute to the caucus. And for that, you are rewarded with a gavel, um, which is a committee chairmanship. Another reason would just be that you have tenure. You've been there for a long time and you're a senior member of the caucus. And in this case, Representative Howard is the most senior member and very powerful. Everyone knows that if you cross her, she will keep you on a list for years to come. She does not let things go, which I respect. And <laughs> and so that's sort of her M.O. in this situation. Um, and I should say that every committee chair serves at the pleasure of the leadership. Yeah. So the speaker is elected by the caucus. They usually come together after the election. Uh, in November. So they come together usually about that first or second week in December. They go behind closed doors. They elect a speaker. And then the speaker gets to decide who chairs what committee. And let's talk about the finance committee. It is the committee that writes the tax law that funds the budget. So we could have a budget this year of anywhere between 25 and $27 billion dollars. It is up to the finance committee to come up with that tax structure that funds that. It is a very important position. I heard someone say that 95% of all legislation goes through the finance committee. It's a powerful position. It is considered a leadership position. So the caucus decides that they're going to move a bill. And my understanding is the finance chair said, I'm not moving the bill. And that created a logjam between the finance committee and the speaker. And it sounds as if the speaker felt like he had no other alternative. Yeah. As a reminder, last week on the podcast, we talked about that press conference that the speaker held with the minority leader. There were a ton of Republicans in that press conference, a ton of Democrats, small business owners, They're essentially holding out. We're passing this bill and she didn't want to pass it. You've already made that commitment to folks. The caucus has already voted on it. 
and you have gone out in the public and said, this is what we're doing. When one person is standing in your way, what do you do? Representative Howard has every right to make her opinions known about any particular legislation. But at the end of the day, as you said, you work at the pleasure of the speaker. Back on one of our first podcasts when we were talking about what a PCS was and the PCS process, you spoke of a situation that you had seen back in the day where um, a PCS was not heard before a committee. And you said that was the only time you had ever seen that. Well, today you were in J3 and something similar happened. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I was in House Judiciary 3 and I was with a client and uh, the bill sponsor gets up and he has a bill. It has been PCS'd by uh, the chairman. In my 20-some years, I've only heard it one other time where someone objected to a PCS. Today, Representative John Faircloth, Republican from Guilford County, represents High Point area. He objected to the PCS being heard before the committee. And he said, I don't want to hear this PCS until it has been corrected. He said that he had heard from constituents back in Guilford County that they had concerns about some domestic violence provisions that were put into the bill. And again, we represent the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And the chairman of the committee, Chairman Lee Zachary, said, well, this will prompt a vote, whether we're going to hear the PCS or not. They called for a vote, a voice vote, and the chair said the PCS is properly before us. But Representative Deb Butler, Democrat from Wilmington, said, I would like to call for division. And that is something where uh, a member of the committee can say, I don't really believe the voice vote was called correctly. I would like to do a roll call vote. And they had a roll call vote just to hear the PCS. It wasn't even to pass the bill, just to hear the PCS. They call the roll, and I believe it is a six to six tie. Mm -hmm. And a tie is not enough to prevail. So the PCS failed, and immediately after that, the, the bill sponsor, Representative Harry Warren, Republican, I believe, from Rowan County, said, I'm going to withdraw the bill from the committee. And it was just one of the most dramatic things. I, again, I understand I'm being a legislative nerd here, Sky. But we all just sat and looked at each other, and many in the room, especially some of the, the younger lobbyists or the newer lobbyists, said they'd never seen this. And again, I've seen it one other time. But it, it was drama, Sky. I think I asked you this on the phone earlier. So what are the next steps for that bill? Because again, there was an original bill um, and DV supported that bill, domestic violence supported that bill. And then the PCS, the proposed committee substitute came out and a lot of advocates had some concerns about it. So what's happening to the original bill? What's happening to the proposed committee substitute of the bill? Well, the proposed committee substitute certainly seems to be wounded. It has bipartisan uh, opposition to it. We're seeing Republicans and Democrats voicing concerns and really coming together in a bipartisan way. 
I have heard the bill sponsor, and there's also Representative Sarah Stevens, who is a, a floater. She's on the committee. She's on every committee because she is the the Speaker Pro Tem, so she can float to any committee. She she has made some mention to some of the advocates that she would like to work with them to fix some of their concerns. Certainly, the the drama that we saw today played in to her wanting to work with advocates. I think the advocates, and again, this is a coalition that is not only domestic violence advocates, but this is sheriff. We had a sheriff's deputy who came from Pitt County today. We had some service providers from nonprofits from all over the state travel to the committee today. I think that this is really showing uh, the power of coalition work and that that coalition work transcends political affiliation. So I think this is going to force those that wanted to that put forward this proposed committee substitute to actually negotiate with Deb Butler and Representative Terry Brown. I am very hopeful that we will get a good bill out of this. A nice little case study in doing politics better. It was really good. You got to do it worse to do it better. (laughs) You do. Yeah. I mean, we say do politics better. It doesn't mean you can't do politics. Right. You just got to do it better. So it has been a week where we have seen a number of bills filed by Democrats. One legislator that is really in the mix of planning kind of the messaging for Democrats, he is a part of a lot of these bill filings, is Representative Greg Meyer, who is with us today. Yeah, he joined us on the podcast. We had an interesting conversation. It is not like our other conversations that we have, but we think that folks will enjoy listening to it. Representative Meyer, welcome to the podcast. First, can you just tell us a little bit about your district? Sure. I represent Orange County, where Chapel Hill and UNC are, although I have most of the county outside of Chapel Hill. And then I represent Caswell County. It's a pretty interesting cross-section of North Carolina. Uh, Orange County is the most highly educated county in the state. Caswell County is number 91 out of 100. Mm. Um, Orange County has uh, lots of affluent people who work in the medical sector uh, or at the university or in the tech sector or the park, whatever. Caswell County still has tobacco farmers. Caswell County has uh, most of the folks that do commute for work. If they're not working uh, on the farm or at home, they're mostly commuting into service sector jobs in surrounding counties. Uh, the people in Orange County are, for the most part, proudly liberal, and the people in Caswell County are proudly uh, rural and really would rather focus on rural than they would focus on their political mm-hmm. place. And uh, the, if you ask people in Caswell County all the time, what do you love most about living here? They almost all talk about uh, how quiet it is. Um, they love that they can fish and hunt there. Caswell County has more hunting and fishing game lands than any other county in North Carolina. Wow. Uh, and so I, I, I love my district because I really feel like I get a picture of North Carolina across the two counties. Yeah, that's great and full of facts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in politics? What drives you? There's a lot of ways to describe how you get into politics, I think. So, I mean, one way is that my mom worked in politics and local government, and so I was kind of raised in a household where it was always present. 
Another way is that I went to interview Jim Hunt in 2003 for a project about race relations in North Carolina, and, and Jim Hunt did what he always does, which is he always wants to find out who he's talking to, what they can offer to someone in North Carolina, and we learned about the work I was doing in education. He said, we need young people like you to run for office. At that point, I wasn't interested in running for office, but I was smart enough to know that if Governor Hunt says you should run for office, you should at least ask his advice. And he gave me the best political advice I've ever heard anybody give. I said, well, if I want to run for office one day, what should I do? How do I prepare? And he said, uh, if you're going to run for office, you should do two things. Number one, you should do something for your community where people recognize your leadership so they have a reason to vote for you. Mm -hmm. And number two, you should volunteer on enough campaigns so that you know a good one from a bad one so that you don't run a bad one. And I did that. I spent my career working in education and, try, and, and specifically in a program to send kids to college. And I built up a community network based on supporting kids and funding them to go to college. And, and so that gave me kind of the network to have volunteers, including some of my former students, and to have donors, including the people that supported our scholarship fund and everything you need to run a campaign. But I also volunteered for campaigns every year. Uh, because of what Governor Hunt recommended. And then by the time I was ready to run, I knew what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. If I remember this correctly, Senator Ellie Senator Kinnaird uh, resigns from the Senate. Then Representative Valerie Fushi goes to the Senate, and then you get appointed to that seat. Being appointed to a seat is, is really... Uh, the way it works, the executive board comes together, they vote, they make a recommendation to the governor, the governor then uh, makes the appointment. That's our state law. That's no easy task coming out of Orange County. Every time Senator Fushi ran for office, I tried to volunteer on her campaign. Okay. Like she was like the one person that I wanted to see through their whole career and support her. And so when she ran for state house, I was in her kitchen cabinet. And then when um, she got appointed to the Senate, I was working really hard to try and figure out who was going to replace her. And I wanted someone who was going to advocate for education in this, with the same passion and skill that I thought Senator Fushi could. And the people who were stepping up, and this included a sitting county commissioner, a city town council member, a protege of the former Speaker of the House, like, it included some pretty formidable people, but none of them were good on education issues. Yeah. And that was when you know, kind of Governor Hunt's vice settled in on me and I was like, oh, I could actually do this. And Senator Fushi was the first person that I called. I had that thought driving home from the gym at like 6 a.m. one morning, which seems like a horrible time to make a major <laughs> decision about getting into <laughs> politics. And maybe we should blame everything that's happened since then on that <laughs> oxygen deprived moment. But I literally got home at like 7.30 in the morning and called Valerie and, and said, I, what if I you know, was to apply for your seat. And she said, I've been waiting for this phone call. Can you talk about being in the minority party? All the things you want to do don't get done for the most part, those big bucket items. Can I take a diversion and tell you a Tony Rand story before I answer your question? <laughs> we would love a Tony Rand story. <laughs> <laughs> first time I ever visited the General Assembly was 2005 when the first in-state tuition bill for undocumented students was introduced. And I was part of the Adelante Education Coalition that was back in that bill. This is my first efforts in state advocacy. So in this college access program I was running, there was a guy who was a mentor named George Shepard. He just passed away a couple weeks ago. He was wonderful. And George said to me, he said, if you ever need to go down to Raleigh, I know some people there. You should call me and take me down there. So we 
So I did. We're going to come for the lobby day. It's the first time I ever coming here. And I called George and I was like, well, we're, yeah, we're going to go down there. Let's go. So we drive over here in the car together. And he tells me that he was roommates at Carolina in the frat house with Tony Rand. <laughs> I didn't know who Tony Rand was. Yeah. Okay. But I'm like, all right, great. So we get here. We walk into Rand's office in that fishbowl. Yeah. And Rand sees George through the glass and just like, dismisses everybody that's in there waiting for him and is like George Shepard what the hell are you doing here come on let's go for a walk and so we just go outside and we go for a walk around the mall and George you know they start sharing fraternity stories whatever I'm just there for the ride I don't remember saying a word but I do remember this George tells him what we're there for and Tony Rand says George I wish we could do something for these kids but we're not going to be able to but you know what will make a difference it would make a difference if every one of these blankety blank blankety blanks around here and you remember how Senator Rankin's cuss. I was just like, what? This is the way politicians talk? <laughs> Ooh, MF this, MF that. Yeah. I wish every one of these blankety blanks could just for a day have to live without a Mexican who was cooking their food and changing their sheets. They would understand that they can't do anything. They can't even wipe their ass without... <laughs> And these kids deserve a chance. <laughs> Senator Tony Rand, who just died this past year, he was the long majority leader on the Democrat. Yeah, I could. You did a perfect impersonation of his Foghorn Leghorn accent. But it's got to be hard to be in the minority, right? Oh, it sucks being the minority. Yeah, I, I don't. When I got here in 2013, and then in the 2014 session, uh, it it was easy to understand that in the minority you can't get anything meaningful done um and i'm not the type of person who's gonna sell out my values in order to just take home some local bacon and orange county frankly doesn't need it orange county wants me to be the progressive voice caswell county wants something different and we can come back to that but I think that it's been easier to balance that since we've had a Democratic governor because at least I can use my party affiliation with the governor to leverage some resources for my district and get some things done. And I also try to find the opportunities to work across party lines to do things that are good for the people that I care about, whether those be people in my district or people across the state of North Carolina. and so. In Caswell County, they're represented by Greg Meyer and Phil Berger. And like we joke about that in Caswell County all the time. I tell them, well, you're going to be happy exactly 50% of the time. Um, but there's some things that Senator Berger and I have worked on together for Caswell County, even though most of the things that are major legislative issues, he and I <clears throat> disagree on and are on opposite sides of. So, but, but we can get some local things done. And then I also look for the opportunities where I can have impact on legislation in ways that I think will help the people that I care about, but sometimes that impact is simply making a bad thing less bad or trying to modify something to be a little bit more workable, uh, but in no way have I ever been able to advance the vast majority of my legislative priorities. Mm. It's just not possible. And um, <clears throat> there's a because I've been a campaign chairman and because I've been someone that other Democrats have called on to lead our floor debates, I've been identified by Republicans as someone who is 
uh, very vocal in opposition to them, and therefore there are a lot of them who won't work with me at all. So I'm going to throw you a little curveball, though. I was uh, socializing with a group of Republicans, in the uh, one of which was in the leadership, and we were kind of having a discussion of who to these Republicans, who on the other side of the aisle do you most admire? Who do you most identify with? Who is most like you? And one of the Republican leaders said, Greg Meyer. Well, it's probably John Zoka. So he and I are both, we both grew up in Cleveland, which gives you a strong affinity for each other. I don't understand how anybody who grew up in Cleveland becomes a Republican. <laughs> but he went, you know, he went in the military, and I didn't, and who knows what changed across the course of our lifetimes. But, I mean, he, he's both been my rival in that we were the campaign chairs of the opposite parties in 2020, and we've been partners in legislation and um, have developed a, a working relationship in the way that you hear about, that people develop working relationships across the aisle. We have dinner together. We talk about bills. I ask him, will you do this? He says, no. He asks me, will you do this? I say, yes. Like, there are those exchanges back and forth between us. And I, I think that at heart, it's because um, it, sometimes I call myself a, a pragmatic idealist. And I, I, that's how I think of Representative Zoka as well. He definitely has his conservative ideals and he's a pragmatist. Both things exist at the same time. So you're saying that if you were someone on the other side, you would be him as well? I, yeah, I think so. Okay. So you, you attended a Do Politics Better dinner, and we had a group of senators here who were from the Republican Party. I was curious as to what your takeaway was from that dinner here at the office in which we just kind of loosened our ties and had a meal and talked. Can you talk a little bit about that? That dinner was what insiders of politics talk about, about how things used to be done, where you'd spend time together talking, eating, drinking, whatever, and then come out of there with new respect for each other and maybe some ideas of where you work with each other. I, I, I think that uh, that helped me with a little bit of relationship building. It helped me respect a couple people across the aisle in a new way that was very meaningful. Uh, and it also made me um, convicted, and I've said this many times, so I'm certainly not afraid to say it here. Um, if the Republicans want to win statewide offices in the years to come, they need to run Danny Britt. Like, that's their guy. Mm -hmm. uh, forget Mark Robinson, like that guy's going to implode at some point. Uh, Danny Britt is, is your way to win statewide elections as the state still becomes more and more blue. So he was at the dinner, and I think out of all the dinners we did, Representative, the one comment as Senator Britt was leaving that night, he, he turned to you and he said, you're not as bad as I heard you were. <laughs> That was kind of a telling comment about someone that... Wait, how am I supposed to take that, Brian? Like, yeah. what am, like, I just thought it was what interesting. Am, but I'm like, no, Sir, do you a, have any comment? Yeah, like, but, <laughs> but the point is, is I, I want to know what you all think about that, because when we're in politics, like I'm going to turn the tables on you, when we're in this, we only know so much of our own reputation. Mm -hmm. And honestly, we all have a big enough ego that we'd rather believe what we want our reputation to be than what we than what our reputation actually yeah. is. So in a moment like that, it reveals what your true reputation is. Well, I think oftentimes, you know, it's the silos of where we get our news. So they read about a Chapel Hill Democrat, or you read about a Robinson County Republican, 
uh, I think they're oftentimes caricatures of really who they are. Everyone wants to see kids educated. Everyone wants to see good roads. Everyone wants to have a, a fair tax base. But I think we don't talk to each other enough. I think we read about each other on WREL or in podcasts. But, you know, we don't really sit down and talk much anymore. I agree with your premise that you can do politics better by spending time with people across the aisle and making that connection. <clears throat> this is my question for you. And, and it's a self-interested question, but... We only have so much control over our own reputation. Yeah. And if you want to be effective from the loyal opposition, as you said, then how do you do politics better when you want to be effective and you also want to stand up for the people that you're fighting for? We're not saying you don't do politics. Do politics. I think the better part is that we don't have to make a tax personal. Doing politics better is about meeting people where they are, you know? So you have to deal with a Republican majority. They have to deal with a governor with a veto pin, trying to meet them where they are. If it's a education bill, if it's even a gun bill, how can we make this better as the two parties working together? A great example of you, your reputation, I think, would be during that school reopening bill, people, everyone was talking about how you were voting with the Republicans. And that came out of your life experience and your constituents. And I had a member of the speaker's staff say to me, Greg Meyer was so great to work with on this. I just did not expect that from him because they hear you stand up and they hear you speak on the floor. So I think that those types of situations kind of move people in ways that maybe you don't expect. So that's one example from seven years. But, you know, I've seen you, Representative Meyer. I was in a conversation with you and Representative Craig Horn. I remember you said... Give me something to do. I would love to help you. And I don't know if he took you up on that offer. He's chairman of House Education at the time. But you you were bending over backwards trying to take a little bit off his plate. But that's part of what's burned me on the idea that you can be effective from the minority because I say that to Republicans all the time. How can I support you? How can I help you on this? Mm -hmm. And they never ask anything. They never give me something to do. Okay. So you just came here to disprove do politics better. Thank you. <laughs> this has been great. Goodbye. <laughs> I promise you I would be honest. No, it's good. It is good. We're going to commercial now. I, I mean, <laughs> my experience is that, Brian, all the things that you listed are ideal and rare. And Sky's example, to me, demonstrates how rare they are. Mm -hmm. That the majority party has very little incentive to work with the minority party. And so even where we can be helpful to them, they don't choose to work with us. Okay. There's an example today where I was working behind the scenes uh, with advocates on a bill for two months and brought up a month ago, well, who's the Democratic primary going to be on the bill and who's going to be a Republican bill. We were just trying to make sure that we could have Democratic support for it. And, the, and then went to the bill sponsor and said, I've got multiple potential people for you. And then the bill was filed today with no Democrat on it. And I was like, why? 
like we we're lined up to help you here. Yeah. It, it, and that type of thing is honestly what makes me feel like I, I've been in positions in my life where I've been help to the community, the help that I want to be here. Why spend my time here when I can go do other things to help people that make a bigger difference than being in the minority in the legislature? Greg Meyer is Speaker of the House, or you're in the leadership, and Democrats have control of the House. How would you like to see the House? How would you like to see it operate? I think there are two major changes we should make for the benefit of the working people of North Carolina. First of all, we're supposed to be a citizen legislature. And if we're going to do that, then you need to have the legislature operate in a way that working people and mothers in particularly can be legislators. And that means we need a predictable schedule with hours that allow you to have a family and a life and a business. If we're not going to do that, then make it a professional legislature. We're, every other state in the top 10 biggest states has a full-time professional legislature. That's fine if we want to do that. But if we're going to be a citizen legislature, and I believe in that concept, then make it so that we can be. The second thing that I would change is uh, I think that the majority party will always have the ability to set the tone and the rules. And both matter. And the majority party should lead in a way that finds opportunities for all of North Carolina to have a voice in policy and budgetary decisions. And what I think I've experienced is uh, that the majority party only leads in a way that says, oh, yeah, we'll let you join us and have a voice as long as you agree with what we want to do. And there's so much legislation that we do in a year, and there's so many portions of a budget that you can still win on all your major priorities, enough to give you a campaign on to win on, and be quite generous to supporting other people. We ask everyone this, if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today to make it better, less partisan, what would that one thing be? I I think that having independent redistricting really is the thing that could reset the political landscape the most quickly. Uh, I think that the other thing that I would wave that's a more policy-oriented piece is um, we have, in North Carolina, we have spent Decades, I mean, basically going back to Brown, actually, I don't say going back to Brown versus Board, but going back to Governor Acock and maybe before. So a century with public education at the center of our policy divide. And I, th- I think that if we could uh, have our teachers paid at a strong professional wage, And if we could fully fund our schools at a level that every North Carolinian felt comfortable sending their child to public schools, that that would take our biggest political issue off the table and allow us to focus on so many other things. Um, And and that's my personal passion. So like that's the one that I would love to get to. Well, Representative Greg Meyer, I I appreciate all you do for your district. I appreciate all you do for the state. You may take issue with this, but I think you, you, you do know how to do politics better, and we appreciate you being at this table. Thanks for having me. appreciate you talking with you all, and we'll see how much longer I'm around the General Assembly. 
So we want to thank Representative Greg Meyer for coming on the podcast. Um, certainly different. Yeah, we heard a lot of general themes for our first several guests. And I think that this was a good interview to see that not everyone's going to say the same thing and that some people don't believe in doing politics better or don't believe that it's a practical way to do politics over a long period of time. I have always thought that the most difficult job in the General Assembly is to serve in the minority party. It is very difficult for them to get legislation moving. They always have their eye on trying to take over the chamber. So you're trying to balance that with also maintaining relationships with the other party so you can get things done. And whether we agree with Representative Meyer or not, I I do think he hits on some of the frustration you must feel when you're in the minority party. All right, looking ahead for next week, as the pace has picked up, there are so many committees in each committee that maybe three or four weeks ago was hearing two or three bills at a time is now hearing 10 to 15 bills. So what do you expect to be on tap for next week? You are going to see priorities from the chambers in the Senate and the House. We're going to start to see those bills move. Whether they have support in the other chamber, notwithstanding, those bills are moving. I talked to a chairman today of a committee, and I, I, I asked him about the agenda. He said, we got a lot of bills. I need you to speak less than a minute, but we're moving legislation because the crossover deadline is coming. And I think most committees are kind of in that mode of, of operations. We've just got to move legislation. We saw this in the past week. We're going to see it again next week. A good example of this is the House has always had a priority of moving the repeal of the school calendar bills. I think we saw about a dozen legislators lined up in the House K-12 committee, and now those bills are in state and local government. They're all going to reach the floor this week, and we're going to see those bills all go over to the Senate. But Phil Berger has already, Senator Phil Berger has already said in the media that he doesn't see what. I think he said something like, I don't see the Senate's position on these bills changing. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to see a lot of bills cross over into the other chamber because if they don't pass one chamber by the crossover date, if they're a policy bill, they're dead. Speaking of Senator Phil Berger and the Senate, He made a really surprising announcement this week about some of the transgender bills that we have seen in the General Assembly. One of the bills that he addressed was in the News and Observer this week, and it was kind of a surprise to many advocates out there that were concerned about some of these transgender bills and the the tie we've seen with, with HB2 from 2016. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yesterday, I believe Senator Berger's spokesperson responded saying that one of those bills, I think Senate Bill 514, would not become law. This is surprising for a couple of reasons. And can you, uh, what does 514 do again? 
It, it is around, it is around, Medical. yeah, it's around hormone ther- therapy, minors being able to, and minors being kids up to age 21, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to have gender affirming care. Yeah. But it was surprising for a couple of reasons. One being that especially with these more controversial bills, a lot of times if the leadership doesn't want those sorts of bills to move, they just make sure that they don't move. Uh, They don't really speak on it or make an announcement to the media. I think it was interesting because it came up on the same day that the New York Times, their daily podcast, talked about transgender bills and tied them all back to House Bill 2. And it really highlighted North Carolina in not a great way. Um, So I think maybe that kind of played into it, just the media around these bills right now. They are very newsworthy, and they seem to be like the next culture war that folks are looking at. Yeah, so there's there's a number of these bills that are floating around the General Assembly. The House had a for discussion only uh, hearing last week. We talked about it last week on the podcast. It was about uh, sports and transgender youth being able to participate in sports. That bill, you know, there's all sorts of rumors. Is it going to be heard? Is is it just going to sit on ice? But it is interesting in in the sense that the leadership doesn't seem to have the appetite to really go down this road again. One, you have a governor who, who seem, all indications seem to be that Governor Cooper would veto this bill, but there's also just a lot of concerns, not only coming from advocates and parents and affected youth, but it, there's a lot of concern from the business community that is still feeling some of the repercussions of HB2. I think we had announced last week that we were going, or two weeks ago, we were going to hear some details about the governor doing his state of the state address that he does in odd numbered years to talk about the state of North Carolina, where we're at, where we're going, what his vision looks like. And he announced, actually, I think leadership announced first, the speaker announced that he would be in the house next Monday night at 7 p.m. The rules chairman, Representative Destin Hall, filed the bill um, that calls invites the governor, His Excellency, as it, as he's called in the le- in the legislation. Uh, but he will be in the chamber on Monday night. Again, this is a Democratic governor addressing a Republican-dominated General Assembly. But this is usually a a very courteous. Uh, state of the state address and the General Assembly receives him with uh, respect and honor. We will see applause. We will see the leadership. They usually respond after the governor speaks. If you're interested in what the state of the state will say, you can view that online or on the internet. It is April 21st now. And I have heard so many people come up to you in the building and say that they fell for your April Fool's joke where you said you were running for mayor. It's quite embarrassing, honestly. Yeah, I I had a lobbyist the other day call me. We had a discussion about some legislation we were working on together. And as he closed out, 
he, he said, uh, I've been meaning to congratulate you on your run. You know, let me know how I can help. I had a staffer uh, over in the rules chairman's office who, who said, hey, let me know how I can help. My wife says that I should take this post down, um, but there seems to be a lot of folks who, who think I'm going to run for mayor of Raleigh. It, it really was an April Fool's joke. You know, it's funny because you don't even live in Raleigh. I live in Cary. We have an office here in Raleigh that doesn't qualify me to be mayor, and that's beside the point. I'm probably not qualified to be mayor of Raleigh. What are you qualified to be mayor for? Or just to be dog catcher? I don't know what I'm qualified for. There's a Brian Lewis that runs every year, isn't there? Yeah, there is a libertarian candidate in Cary who has run for the North Carolina Senate. And by the way, when he's run in the past, Sky, I have gotten text messages from legislators and lobbyists saying, hey, let me know how I can help. Uh, but I'm not that Brian Lewis, and, and I'm not running for Raleigh mayor. I think when people say, hey, let me know how I can help, like when they think you're running for something, it's like when you see somebody on a, you know, you're just passing them on the street, and you say, hey, how's it going? You don't want to know. Yeah. You're just saying it. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I should give everyone my Venmo account and see if they really want to help, um, but I don't think I'm not expecting a lot of money. Mm. Do you know how to work Venmo? No, remember I have $20 in my Venmo <laughs> account from four years ago, and I still don't know how to get it out. Wow, this sounds like a fun plan. <laughs> well, that is our show for the week. I hope next week is a little less adventurous. I think that that is a hope that may not come to fruition. Yeah, well... We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Do Politics Better. We hope that you take the time to rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Help listeners find us. And remember to do politics better. Which I heard my LA lodged a complaint with you, Brian. Yes, she did. <laughs> Apparently, she has some problems with my skateboarding <laughs> down Jones Street. She almost ran me over. And I'd like to say, for the record, she was more concerned about her own liability than my <laughs> well being. <laughs> it's like if I hit you. This is politics, man. What do you expect? I know. <laughs>